Father in heaven, we thank you again for this chance to study together. Lord, we wish we didn't live in a sinful world. We know that the great controversy is going on, and our wishes will one day become true because our wishes are based upon faith, and faith in the Word of God that promises that Jesus is coming again soon. But until that takes place, we still live in a sinful world, and there are real-life problems that we have to deal with. I pray that you will be with us as we talk about, as leaders, how to manage these problems, how to help people with these problems, and to do so in a way that is redemptive. May your Spirit guide us, we pray. Give me words to speak and all of us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, up to this point, we've done a lot of work, so let me back up just to review. I think most of you are used to teachers doing that. If you've been out of class for a while, it's good to be reminded how teachers function. And it is, I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to get going down a track. I need to be reminded of where I was yesterday and what I learned yesterday. And that is part of the way that I learn as well. And so I'm going to just back up here in case anybody wasn't here the first day or you weren't here yesterday or whatever. I just bring you up to speed with what we have done in the last couple of days. We have talked about the whole process of redemptive discipline. We have done so in discussing it in the context of Revel- I mean, Matthew chapter 18. We pause to talk about uh, the whole chapter in, uh, that Jesus, where he spoke about the need of the church and Christians in the church, his disciples, his followers, to care for each other like a lost sheep. In chapter 18, he spoke again of the lost sheep that the shepherd had to go out and find and leave the sheep that were in the fold because they were in the fold. He didn't have to worry about them, but he went out to find the lost sheep. And immediately after reminding them of that that scenario, something very familiar with them because they were used to the shepherds being there Around, seeing them around in the sheep and, and all. They understood the imagery. Jesus told them about how to interact with each other when problems came up. The disciples had problems. Amen. They didn't always agree with each other. They wanted to know who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There were other times when they got upset with each other and they got upset with other people. The disciples wanted to call fire down from heaven in order to be able to take care of those Samaritans that weren't being nice. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's not the spirit of heaven. That's not what I came to teach. So the disciples had to learn along the way. So Jesus outlined three steps when a brother, or I'll include a sister, offends us. He said, if you are offended, somebody does something to hurt you, does something wrong, Go to him alone. Go to her alone. If they follow that that principle and that person responds and says, I'm sorry, let's make it all right, then it's taken care of. One-on-one, nobody else knows about it. It's finished. It's done. It's taken care of. But if the person doesn't respond appropriately and says, oh, leave me alone. I don't really care about that. Yeah, whatever. Then the second step is we go with two or three others. We've said along the way that it might be that we do this more than once. Those may be the steps, but if we get a glimmer that there is some hope there, we want to continue this process until all hope is apparently exhausted. And the person may say, well, I intend to do that, but they don't do it, then we have to take the next steps. But we talked about the third step, going to the church. We also talked about in our class on the second day, we talked about the fact that there might be a third step that leads to a fourth step that's similar to the third step that Jesus outlined, but working within the context of our organization as the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that that third step is creating within the Board of Elders the authority by authority of the local church to put a person under a period of grace without having to bring it to the whole church, 
just through the board of elders so that it is contained as much as possible before, uh, in, in an effort to solve this problem before it becomes broad and widely known so that the redemptive process can be inclusive of, uh, of less people instead of trying to give it out to the whole church. Yesterday, we spent a lot of time talking about what I guess I would say in this context, that fourth step of taking it to the church. And we talked and outlined that whole process. We talked about it in detail because churches have to deal with it from time to time. They need to be able to manage that. And we talked about the fact that you go to the church in, in, uh, in the church board. You talk about that as a recommendation from the board of elders if you've set up that process. And the process would be, in the case of Mr. B, who we've been talking about a lot this week, anybody with a last name that begins with B here? I'm not talking about you. You haven't been feeling guilty all this time, have you? No. Yeah, okay, good. And so, anyway, uh, we, we take the, ex the recommendation that Mr. B has resisted the counsel that we've been given. He's not done what he said he would do. The sin continues in, this, in the case of that scenario. Uh, he's living with, uh, not living, he's having an affair with a woman. He's not breaking that affair off. He's an elder in the church. He, uh, his wife is not an Adventist. He's also a Sabbath school superintendent. His wife is not an Adventist. She's com uh, complaining or appealing to the church to deal with this, and he doesn't do what we ask him to do. Have that. Oh, that's coincidental. Are you an elder in the church? You was, but you aren't. It's still not about you, so I want you to know that. Yeah, he, oh, that's true. Yeah. He wants an elder, always an elder, except you have to be elected in the local church. You gave me an opportunity to make that statement. And so the, um, the board votes to sense to, I mean, discusses whether to censor uh, Mr. B or to take a recommend, I should say to slow down, Royce. The church discusses the recommendation that comes from the board of elders. The recommendation is to censor Mr. B for a period of, say, three months. The board discusses that, but the board can decide whether or not to accept that recommendation or to pass on another recommendation, a different one, and that is it's gone on too long. We think he needs to be removed from church membership. And he could do either one of them. Yes, and it's an executive session. Thank you for reminding me. And, uh, or they can dismiss it all and say, we're not going to do anything. So the board makes a, rec makes a decision. All right, this is the review part. The board makes a decision about what to recommend to the church and business session. Do nothing, censors him for a period of time, or move, remove him from membership. Because this is an ongoing problem, an ongoing rebellion against clear Bible and spirit of prophecy counsel, and therefore... The person is removed from, it, it, it could be removed from membership or censored for a period of time. So I'm going to keep going for just a moment. So the, this goes on to uh, the, the board makes a decision. Let's say the board decides to accept the recommendation of the board of elders and uh, makes the decision to recommend to the church and business session that they're going to remove them from, uh, that they're going to censor them for three months. So Mr. B is informed of the action of the church board. The church board has made a decision that the meeting is going to happen as soon as possible, which we said is two weeks, because you have to allow time for the church to be uh, informed of the meeting that's coming up and the business meeting. It didn't happen to be a business meeting scheduled, so they have to schedule it uh, and, uh, and let everybody know about it. Two weeks from then, they want to make sure Mr. B can be there if he chooses to be. He says he wants to be, so he says he can be there in two weeks, which is two Sunday nights from, uh, from where they are. And so they make that announcement in the church. For two Sabbaths, they announce it. They send a letter out to the church members, you know, communicate in whatever way they can. They get the word out, and the business meeting takes place. The business meeting takes place. Mr. B is there, as he said he would be. The church is in executive session. That means that if they're not a member, so Mr. B is at the meeting, and at that meeting, he's been informed that he can make a presentation 
um, if he believes that he's being wrong. Now, he thinks he's right. He thinks it's okay for him to do what he wants to do. But the real question is whether or not he ha agrees that what he's being accused of is actually accurate. I don't want this to sound like a court because this is a redemptive discipline, but I'm being real brief in the language that I'm using. And so he has this, uh, he, he comes there and he says, I'd like to make a statement. And we say, okay, you've got a couple minutes to make a statement, but we're making our presentation. Our recommendation is from the church board that you be censured for three months. And the reason is because you're violating the seventh, seventh commandment uh, that is clearly taught both in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and it's what the Seventh-day Adventist church believes. And because you're violating the seventh commandment, we believe you should break this relationship off. That's what we are trying to do. We're not trying to punish you. We're trying to stop your behavior. And by doing what we're doing here, we're asking you to stop that. And the real question that we have for you, Mr. B, is do you agree that what you are doing, um, that we have rightly represented it and you really are doing that? Yes, I really am doing that. So what is it you want to share? I want to share why I believe it's okay for me to do that. Now, at that point, it's a little bit of a judgment call on the part of the pastor who's chairing the meeting as to whether he wants to give him a little bit of time to explain why he believes that's okay. Because this is not a place for him to have a forum to flaunt his sin. This is a place for him to say, no, you've you have not rightly represented me. I'm not having a relationship with that woman. You're telling lies about me. That's not actually happening. That's really what his defense should be. Yeah, we, we changed some of the scenarios. I'm changing it a little bit right now just to keep it simple. I want to make sure the basic principles are covered. And that is that at that meeting, he has a right to rep represent himself. No lawyers, we said. And in that setting, he, um, he, he says, yes, it really is that way, but I believe it's okay for me. And we might give him a couple of minutes to explain that. But usually when they try to explain why sin is okay, they only dig the hole deeper. And we're not going to spend a lot of time in doing that. If it's false theology, I'm not going to give them time to explain their false theology because we don't believe it. They are agreeing that they believe what we don't believe, and then we have to take an action. So at that point, the church votes. Now, the church can reject the recommendation of the church board, right? They can say, we don't believe that, that uh, we need to take an action against him. Now, there are some churches that will do this. And when it's as clear as the situation is with Mr. B, it really is discouraging to a lot of people in the church. And, and, and that's a challenge. And it's a problem. And it is discouraging. And it's frustrating. And most importantly, it brings dishonor to God. We think we're showing love to people when in reality we're not because we have taken redemptive steps to encourage this person to turn his back on sin. My Bible says that the wages of sin is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. And when a person is sinning and we say it's okay for them to sin, or we're going to ignore your sin because we like you too much, we're actually saying it's okay, you can go ahead and die in your sin. And we don't care enough about you to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, that's where that comes from too. So it gets to be a real challenge that way. All right, that's a summary of what we've done up to this point. Now, let's see if technology is going to behave itself now, and I can go back into this. So with that summary in mind, I want to take us to a next step. Now, some of you have submitted some uh, cases here, and I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to share them because I want to just talk about this in a real context. How many of you sit on your church board? Okay, so there's quite a few of you. How many of you that raised your hands a moment ago have sat on the church board when you've dealt with issues like we're talking about? I don't mean exactly like, but I mean redemptive discipline type issues. Okay? I'm not going to ask you whether you feel that your church handled them redemptively. I just wanted to know if you've had to deal with them. Now, those of you who didn't raise your hand in terms of being on the board and having dealt with it, you might have been on the board in the past, and have had to deal with that. That's probably true. Or you might be church members who had it come to a church and business session. So how many of you have either been on the church board and dealt with this 
or have been a church member, not been on the church board, have had to deal with issues? How many of you? Okay, that's almost all of you. All right? Good. So you understand what we're talking about here. I want to stress again that this whole issue is an issue of redemptive discipline. We want to be able to... We've talked a little bit about these scenarios here, but we want to try to fit it in because my goal today is to talk about real issues, but also to talk about conflict management. I've given you um, a document that will help you in working through conflict in your church, and I want to talk to you a little bit about it. But I want to take some of these examples. Let's, um, here's a scenario that's been shared. It says, while the church has to take some form of action, so not to hurt the church, he needs to think about what he's doing to his wife and how she must be feeling, feeling and the church needs to get to know his wife and to talk to her, okay? I'm going to use that in the context of what we're going to talk about uh, here in a moment in dealing with conflict management. Here's a scenario that Mr. B is accused of illegal sexual advances. He can fight it and maybe get 12 to 15 years. He can plead no contest and be done with jail in 18 months. He chooses the second choice. When he's released, how does the church relate to him? He claims innocence, but will be on the sex offender registry list. Wow. Let me take a moment to talk about that one, because it's real. It's real. As the ministerial director, I've, I am increasingly having to address these issues in the local church. I address them when the case is clear, the person's gone to jail, the person admits having uh, done something illegal and winding up on a registry list. When that happens, I'll talk to that for a moment because, quote, that's cleaner to know how to address it and how we function with this. And so the, in the church, in the local church, this is what we would recommend. Where an individual has been, uh, has served jail time and admits to the fact that they are guilty of the crime and comes to a local church and wants to participate in that local church, we believe that person has a right to participate in that local church. So we don't automatically exclude them from that church. But the church also has a right to take steps necessary to protect their children. All right. So now we're caught between the individual's right to attend church and the church's right to protect its children because 99% of the time these events or these, these issues involve children, underage children, and, and all of that. So this individual, what we do is we tell the pastor that the pastor needs to uh, visit with the individual discuss the situation with them, and we have a document, an agreement that that person has to sign that they are going to participate by certain uh, rules when they come to church. If they're still, if they were under probation, they would have to abide by those rules, but being on the registry list, they also have to abide by those rules. And the rules are basically state, you're coming here to church, and you have to come here, but you, I mean, you can come here, but only under the supervision of someone you agree is going to be your supervisor. It may be a particular person and the same person every week. It may be a different person, but a person by office. It might be someone from the elders or somebody from the deacons that are going to be with you constantly. You are not, not allowed to go to any of the children's Sabbath school classes. You are not allowed to stay here for potluck and be hanging around the kids. You can come to Sabbath school and church, and you must be with, the, with your supervisor the whole time. If you go to the bathroom, the supervisor goes with you. Make sure that there are no children in that bathroom. There are no issues there. Those are the kinds of steps that we take in relationship to this when the issue has been very clear. When we have a case 
where the individual claims innocence, the church is stuck. Because the church has no right to become the judge and jury and to, in that particular case, go against what the law has decided. Because there's another factor that's working here in this situation. I'll tell you what it is. It's called risk management. Because whether I like it or not, we live in a litigious society. You understand what I mean by that? People like to sue the church. Okay, like, that's not the right word. People will sue the church, okay? And there are some people who actually like to sue the church. And uh, I, anyway, we know about that. <laughs> and um, the challenges that come with that is that the church has to take and meet a certain standard in order to be preventing disaster from happening in that local church. So here's, here's the problem. If I believe and accept the fact that this individual is indeed innocent, but I don't know that he is because I wasn't there or whatever, but I assume because I believe that he's a nice person and I want to believe that he's innocent and I don't impose anything on him that I've just like I've just, just described, but unbeknownst to me, he really was guilty or even if he wasn't guilty, but now actually does what he was accused of, again with somebody else, and we as a church, knowing that he'd been accused and he had been convicted and spent time in jail, even though it was no contest, if somebody's child is molested by that person and then turns around and chooses to sue the church, What's going to happen in court? The church is going to be held liable unless by the grace of God somebody out there has mercy and it doesn't happen because the church didn't maintain that standard that the church itself recognizes it has to impose because of law and because of the circumstances. And so this, is, this has become really unfortunate. And there are actually times when we have to tell people, because local churches will sometimes say, we're sorry, but we can't take the risk. Well, I know of churches where somebody comes along like this, and in that situation, the people say, I'm not bringing my kids there anymore. And all of a sudden, the kids, the families begin to evaporate from the church. I can't control the decisions that parents are going to make in that church. And now the church comes face to face with, do we lose all the families in our church over this in individual and that situation? Or we, do we tell that individual, we're sorry, but we'd love to have you. We'd be willing to work with you. But there's some families that are just not able to manage this. And we've got to make a decision and ask you not to come back. Those are so heart-wrenching. And I, I, I've talked to church members and leaders in the churches that don't want to make those decisions. But because they are leaders, they don't have choice but to make those decisions and to work in those kinds of cases. Oh, that the sinful world would come to an end and we don't have to deal with those things anymore. But they're real. They are very real challenges. And they are part of this redemptive discipline process because here, folks, is something we have to remember. Sin has consequences. We talked about it yesterday in relationship to Mr. B. If Mr. B has this affair and a child is born in that situation, or the woman that he has had that affair with decides to sue him or to, to uh, share it in the newspaper or whatever because he's a, he's a wealthy man and he's public official and, or whatever the case may be, and, and it comes out, I can't stop the consequences of that. Because remember, in our redemptive discipline process, what we've been trying to do is to contain this so that this man can go on with his life and, the, and, and because he's turning his back on sin and he does not have to be 
punished for that sin because he's, a, he's confessed that sin and made it right with Jesus. That's what we want to have happen. Problem is that sin has consequences. And when sin involves those that level of consequence, I can't stop that from happening. I can't tell that person not to speak to anything. And I'm certainly not going to raise a bunch of money to keep that, that lady from sharing her story. That's not appropriate. We're not going to do any of that. Sin has its consequences. And an individual is going to have to face that and realize that danger and that problem and that it's a real, real, real issue. And that's true for the man who's um, been accused, rightly so, we're assuming that for right now, and that this person is put in jail, that's part of the consequence, but that consequence doesn't leave just because that person comes out of jail. The person says, now wait a minute, I've paid my time. Yeah, that's true, you have. But society has imposed certain uh, restrictions based upon their experience with problems, and I can't change that. The truth of the matter is the recidivism, you know what I'm saying, the falling back into that problem again is so high with people that uh, society has said, we just can't take the risk anymore. Wow, complicated world. Okay, I saw a couple of hands, please. I was thinking about that and I wanted to say it and then I forgot it and you just reminded me. Ellen White says, and the context, I'm not right off the top of my head, but the context is in a case where it was especially disgustingly immoral on the level of what we're talking about, okay? And it says, yes, I think it was in that, in that, uh, in that context. And she says that God may forgive that person, but that person may have to go to heaven without being able to be a church member. And that's just reality. That doesn't mean God doesn't love them. God doesn't care about them, that God can't, can't, uh, can't change the challenges of living in society in the church environment and do all of that, and he may have to live outside of the church because of the nature of that sin. It's, some, it's also on the same nature of the, the uh, sin that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter, is it 5? 5 or 6 and uh, where he talks about the fact that the sin was so disgusting that even the Gentiles considered it disgusting. And apparently that has to be pretty disgusting because the Gentiles didn't seem to think there was any issues. All right? And now when you say join, what do you mean? If he wanted to be in the church. Yeah, if he wanted to come to church as long as the church said that he could and he followed those, those steps, yes. That's right. Mm -hmm. He could. These are really challenging issues today, and boy, I'll tell you what, I don't like it when my phone rings and that's what I hear on the other end. Let me repeat that, and I'm going to come back to that one, because I'm, I, this is the kind of thing the church is facing more and more and is really struggling with how to manage it. So I want to come back to it, and then I'm going to move into our, uh, our uh, discussion regarding um, handling conflict. You indicated that in your church you had an individual. Um, he was uh, practicing a homosexual lifestyle. He was a practicing uh, homo. Yeah, God wanted him to be a homosexual and, and that it was okay for him to do that. The church took on that issue and eventually the church and business session removed his name from church membership. But the challenge the church was facing there is what to do next. We've had some discussions on it in our, in our class in the last uh, couple of days in the sense that we are understanding that this is a redemptive process and when we get to that point, we want to treat them the way we would want to be treated and the way God wants us to treat a person who is not a member of the church. And that is with love and compassion. And so your church was wrestling with that as a whole, people, some people were saying, no, we, want, we, can't, we, we don't want him here at all. I mean, that's just, just disgusting. We don't want him here. Others are saying, no, we need to treat him with love, and he should be welcome to come here and to, to be a part of this. Now, this issue, along with anything else, can be a challenge, and this is where it comes. If you remove him from church membership because of the fact that he is practicing an immoral lifestyle, and he decides, and, and so you remove him, 
And then after removing him, he says, wow, you know, I get it. This, this really isn't right. I really can't do this. And then he wants to come back to the church. The church, that's not a difficult piece to understand. But when that individual, and should welcome him back, even though they might not give him his membership back immediately, it should take some time for that person to kind of integrate himself back into the church family and, and show that he's truly repentant and that he's, uh, he's left that lifestyle and is no longer there. But if that person is removed from church membership, continues to teach and believe that God wants him to participate in this lifestyle and and because he does continue in that lifestyle and the church says, no, we want him to come to church and be part of here because of that lifestyle. Now things, that, that that's really where things get very, very challenging because the practice of that sin is continuing. Um, I wish I had some of our friends from Coming Out Ministries here because some of them have gone through that kind of experience. And I think I would call, I would suggest a balance here. The church is struggling with this. It doesn't mean we can't love him, that person. But is it the best place for them to come to church while they're still practicing that and creating confusion among the young people and all? Because if that person still believes that, still practicing that lifestyle, still doing all of that, it's going to spill over in the sense that, that young people are going to say, well, it's okay to do that. And in this society right now, young people are tremendously influenced by this. And as I said in the class, in my class last session, as we were talking about last day events, as I said in that session, the difficulty and the problem is that in some cases, young people are coming to our pastors and saying, is it really all that bad? Because if I were, if I were to say that, that uh, I believe this lifestyle is okay and that actually I'm actually participating in that lifestyle, I would be popular in school. That's what the kids are telling pastors today. All right. So with that kind of situation, can we afford to have that influence in the church by someone who continuing to practice that? Is that showing love to that person? Maybe, but it's not showing love to the church by protecting the church environment. So what could be happening in the meantime? The elders could be working with that person on the side, could be studying the Bible with them on the side, still reaching out to them in love, but outside of participating in the church because of the challenge that provides at the church. Now, you know, this is a situation, these situations are so tough today that what's going to happen here, and, and maybe already is happening, I think it already is, but a person who has that kind of experience, they get out there and they put the word out in their social circles, and then pretty soon they start showing up at the church and they pick it outside the church. And they start saying that this church is homophobic and, and unfair to them and so on and so forth. And they'll, they'll do that kind of thing. And if it gets really makes a news event, then the Huffington Post and all kinds of other places will get a hold of it. And they'll start to do stuff with it. And, and boy, I tell you, they have a field day with it. And we've been having some of that with pastors that have come out of the Seventh-day Adventist church who's saying, I believe it's okay to be bisexual, or I, I, I'm a, I'm, I am homosexual, and I believe it's okay, and I think it's appropriate, but I know my church doesn't, so I'm, I'm coming out of the church. It makes the Huffington Press, or the Los Angeles Times, and it gets all over the place. That's what we're living in today, and that's the challenge that we have in being able to work through these problems. Okay, I saw a couple, three or four hands, okay? Well, only if you have to. Because was he a member yes, yes, on the church books? Thank you for catching that. Okay, let me. Okay, let me. Wow. Okay, let me. Let me. Let me ask something. Two questions. Two questions. Is was he a member of your church? Your church. Member of your church. Okay. Is he still a member of your church? Okay. See the difference. So what they didn't do is they didn't disfellowship. What happened to his membership? Or remove him? We don't use the word change. He left and did what? Okay, so all right, all right. This is not a trial for their church, all right? Okay, so let's back off. I appreciate this practical nature and, and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, I don't know how much I got on the recording here, but as we pursue this a little bit, repeating the situation, what actually, was hap what actually happened there 
is that he stopped attending. His membership was still there. It never came to a church and business session to remove him from church membership. And at this particular point, you don't know what actually happened. Uh, that's actually good for a moment because I'm going to back up on that and I'm going to say, all right, what should be or what could have been the steps that might have happened in his case? All right, so here's the scenario. Let's assume that all the redemptive steps that we've talked about have been taken. As she said, the elders said, we're working with him. We're trying to appeal to him and, and uh, reach out to him and deal with that. And then all of a sudden he stops coming and whatever. His church, his membership is no longer on the church books, she says. So what could have happened, and I'll use the term appropriately, that would be the right word. But what could have happened appropriately for that individual, for his name to be off of the church books? What could have happened? All right. What scenarios are possible? Tell me. Okay. All right, he could have requested his membership to be dropped. All right? Okay. All right. All right. All right. That's exactly the right question to ask. What if he did request it? What would have happened? If he had requested his membership to be dropped, what should have happened is that that request would have been received by the church, church board, in writing. All right? He would have gone to the church board. The church manual says without discussion. Now, this is good because there's a piece here. Somebody asked me about this as well, and it is a little bit confusing in the church manual today. See, I gave out the church manual to you all, didn't I? Let's see if I can find my copy of that. Okay, if you didn't get a copy of what the church manual says on this, it's, it's here. Anybody else not get a copy of this? See why I give you notebooks? Because I knew you were going to get all this stuff that I'm handing to you and, and your, your place is going to look like my little pile over here when the day gets done if you don't have it here. so Thank you very much for getting me where I need to be. Yeah, I'll come to that. Okay, Second to the last page. It's on, on two sides, so it would be back here. The last page looks like this, right? And it's this one. And it says, members at their request. Right. All right. Let me read through this because I want you to pick up this little piece here. This isn't so much redemptive, but it is process. And I think that's good for us to discuss it. Then we want to put it in the context of redemption. It says, great care should be exercised in dealing with members who request to be removed from membership. And the way they suggest that is... The church recognizes the right of the individual to withdraw membership. Letters of recognition should be presented to the church board. What did I say? <laughs> okay, thank you. Words of resignation, letters of resignation, shall be presented to the board where the resignation will be recorded with the effective date according to the resignation letter. Out of Christian consideration for the individuals involved, action shall be taken without public discussion. Efforts should be made to restore the individual to the church family. Now, the church manual used to say, and that's where this comes in, and we're all trying to understand this, and it did come to Elder Mitchiff, and I think that we've come to understanding, and now that I think about it, now I'm processing it, I say, yeah, we did just have this conversation, and yes, that's what he said. All right, the church manual used to say until this version came out, and it changes every five years, all right? And it changes with little nuances like this. The church manual used to say it comes to the church board without discussion, and then it goes to the church and business session, and then church and business session has to act on it, but also without discussion. The problem is that why are we doing that when the person has requested their membership to be dropped? Why do we need to take that step and take it to the church and business session? Because there's no real value in doing that. Now, one could argue that redemptively, somebody might say, look, I know this person. Let me go and plead with them and, and whatever. You could argue that. But the church manual clearly is saying 
that it needs to be recorded once it's brought to the church board. Okay, that's the way I understand that. And that's because this is their request. But if I'm the pastor, I would not do that until I'm sure that a good process has been followed, that somebody has attempted to reach that person. Because I know of stories of people who've gotten angry over something and written a letter to the church and regretted having written that letter as soon as they sent it but didn't have the courage to say, please, don't do that. And so that goes through and they're just fellowship or they're removed from church membership. Somebody needs to go through and just say, look, I, I've got your letter. I'm not questioning you. All I want to know is, is this really what you want? Or did you just do this in a fit of anger? Because we love you. We want you to still be part of the church. If you're telling us that this is really what you wanted, I'm not going to discuss it with you anymore. Just know I'm praying for you. And that's what's happening in that situation. So somebody should do that. Somebody should somehow reach out to that person, but without questioning them, and then take it to the church board if they say, no, I did want to do this. All right, Doc, and then up here. And that, that is the answer to your question relative to what does it mean without that, without question, without discussion. It is just that we can't start saying, well, I don't think we should do this, or I, you know, I think we, I think is a good person and whatever. No, you don't have a right to make that decision. You don't have a right to have that discussion. The person's asked for their membership to be dropped and it needs to be dropped. Okay? All right. Right. And I, if, if this followed a process it should have followed, um, it's not inappropriate for the church simply to be informed. And that should be what happens. And that's really what we were saying here at this point. It's not that it comes to a church and business session. The person has requested their membership to be dropped, so it's dropped. And maybe the next newsletter goes out or in the church bulletin, um, it might simply say that uh, uh, George Jones has requested his, I mean, has, uh, well, you might even say he requested his membership to be dropped and that was granted from our church member, right. And, uh, and leave it that way, the, at least the church knows about what happened and knows that and there's no further discussion on it. Wow, interesting situation here. How we... Is that time right? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, I'm gonna take your comment over here and then here and then no more comments because I gotta finish my class here today. On the, oh, right, please. You're not going to get, I'm, you know, I was thinking this class is going to be really short today and I might be letting you out early today. All right, I got to address that and, and I got to tell you what I, you know, let me try to speak generically because I don't know all the details. But I'll take the details that you've given me and we're not going to try to analyze it all the way through. You're dealing with a situation like you've described and a person's coming to church and people are hovering over them, and if the person's participating in communion, what's wrong with that? Okay. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to um, 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse, what, 17, 18? Yeah, 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 there you go. Thank you very much. Um, Paul's context is he's dealing with the unworthiness and the challenges that are there. Then he reminds them of the service. And then in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And let a man examine himself, and let so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak among you, and many sleep. The problem, there are a number of different factors going, but the basic principle that Paul is talking about here is the fact that we are, uh, that people are taking, play, taking um, part in the communion service, which is a mockery of what the communion service is. The communion service is a reminder that I've been cleansed from sin by the blood of Jesus and that I have turned my back on sin to allow that person to participate in a communion service is making a mockery of Jesus and the cross. And I'm sorry, it's, it's making a mockery of Jesus and the cross. 
All right, so let me, let me keep going for a moment. I'll, I'll see your hand. So the question is, what should the church be doing in this? And I also have a problem with the fact that the church is, in your words, fawning over this person or hovering around them and, and trying whatever to do here. I wish that the coming out group were here because they could speak to this out of the circumstances that they have dealt with. And I, I wish I had been in all their classes and, and all of that. But I've got to tell you, there comes a time at which you have to take a stand against sin for what it is when you've done everything you can to let you know, those people know that you love them and you care about them. And I think there comes at a time when you actually need to say, you can't come here anymore. And that's very hard to do. We are doing it today. I told you about that yesterday, right? Did I say something about that yesterday? We are actually, we've told some people because of their doctrinal stand and their insistence on coming to our church, we've said you are no longer welcome in our churches because of what you're doing. I don't like doing that, but when those people are coming in and they're slowly poaching off of the church, they don't have a right, and they, they said, well, I have a right to come to church. You can't tell me I can't come to church. Jesus wouldn't tell me he wouldn't come to church. Let me tell you, he certainly would. And as a matter of fact, there's nothing in anything that Jesus ever did that says it's okay for you to come and flaunt your sin or your heresy in among the church. And if anything, it's the opposite of that. And Jesus holds us accountable for not protecting the flock. And you don't have a right to be there. And so we've taken that stand against it and in this case, it should be done lovingly, it should done, be done by steps, and it should be done by people of authority in the church, but eventually it needs to be said, we're sorry, you can't come here. Now, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what will happen. As soon as the church takes that stand, the individual will go to all their friends in the church that, they, that throw their arms around them all the time and say, your church doesn't love me anymore. It doesn't care about me anymore. And then it's going to be uh, an issue in the church, and the church is going to have to wrestle with it. But I'm going to say this. Welcome to the last days. It's going to get worse. And what we talked about in our previous class was the shaking, and this is part of the shaking. Okay? I'm going to give you an opposite side of that because I think it's part of the, part of the kinds of dynamics that often play out. And that is that when it's a leader in the church that leader needs to be faithfully supporting what the church believes. If that person, that leader is not faithfully supporting what the church believes, that person is not fit to be a leader in the church. And that is where things get really very complicated. And I'll tell you a story of a situation where I was so thankful. Um, I think I saw it said it in another class, not in this one, but I studied with a lady here recently preparing for a baptism and she was struggling with some things. And her father is a member of the church. I don't think he's a leader in the church, but he's a member of the church. And she was telling me how she'd get on the phone and she'd call her father, who lives in another state that perhaps is known for some of its um, liberalism, if you want to, I don't like that word, but I don't know what else to say. And he, she called her father and her father said, well, you want to be a Seventh-day Adventist, you should expect them to have that direction. And what a difference that made in, rea in relationship to how she responded. Because she knew that it, she knew it was wrong herself, but her father supported the fact that it was wrong. And consequently, she realized it was, and so she went away from it. That's what should be happening in that situation. All right, I could answer in dealing with the issue of open communion, we believe in open communion. How many of you knew that? Okay, It should be said at your church every time you have a communion. Because you might have a visitor there who's a non-Adventist and they're coming there. But we believe in open communion, meaning this, that if you have a faith in Jesus Christ, you've confessed your sins to Jesus Christ, you may not be a member of our communion, so to speak, our church, but you have this belief, but you're in a growth period in your life and you're learning and so on and so forth. You have a right to participate because of your faith in Jesus Christ. But I have a problem with a person who violates this principle and, and that person is flaunting it. And that's why I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
to, uh, verse 4, it says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power um, of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorifying is not good. Do not know that a little heaven leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Paul makes it clear that we sometimes have to take a stand against open sin. We're not talking about a situation where an individual is, is doing something in their life that nobody knows anything about and examine himself. In this particular case, the church has a right to examine that situation and to deal with that situation. And if it's being flaunted in front of the church, now the church must take a stand. Well... That was what I was looking for. Thank you for picking. What was that, verse 11? Yeah. Now, some people take that to an extreme, and they won't even have them at their house or whatever the case may be. We're especially talking about the church situation and the influence that it has. Thank you. That was the verse I was looking for. All right. Let's. Okay. Let me pause, push the button here for a moment. We are not going to get to what I was going to talk about. Okay. That's the bad news. The good news is I still have tomorrow, and my schedule has time in it for us to do that tomorrow. So I'm glad to be talking about this and dealing with these real issues, and we will bring out the issues of conflict management tomorrow. Is that okay? Is that, is that gonna work all right? All right. Are some of you disappointed that I'm not dealing with conflict management today because you saw it in the book? And You're not gonna come tomorrow, are you? Ah, okay. I'll, I'll hit a couple of highlights just for you. No, I, I don't know that I can. All right, did you have your hand up? Yeah, order the CD. <laughs> Take the materials. I'll give you the materials. Yeah, all right, all right. Absolutely, the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy, very clear on that. So thank you, I appreciate that. That's very, very helpful. Okay, let me come back to your statement. We're going to close off with that, okay, because i got about five minutes, and fortunately my time's running out. No, I'm kidding. Look, folks, pastors are human beings, right? Pastors make mistakes. I'm a pastor, and I've made mistakes. Obviously, the challenge comes when we're dealing with difficult problems, and you're not expressing to me the nature of that situation, so I'm just going to take it, and I'll take it a certain direction, and, and we'll do that to be able to illustrate what, what would happen in that circumstance. Your church has leadership in its church, and there's a reason why it does. You have a board of elders there, and because he, pastors are humans and they can make mistakes, human beings, they can make mistakes, they also need to be held accountable for those mistakes that they made. Now, sometimes those most mistakes are blatant, all right? There are pastors who have done what Mr. B did and have that kind of situation and there wouldn't be that level of tolerance with the pastor. If the information comes to me and I find out, the ministerial director, I have to take it to the personnel committee and I have to work it through with that individual. But basically, I'm going to go to the pastor and I'm going to say, is it true? If the pastor says it's true, then I will say, I need you to hand over your credentials. All right? Because at that moment, their, their role as a pastor is over. I, I, you just can't. You can't have it when it's that clear and that, that level. That's something, those kinds of situations can come to a ministerial director or the president of the conference, the secretary of the conference, whoever they might contact, and that situation is very clear and cut. Other times the situations may be not on the moral level of breaking a commandment like that, you know, robbing banks or breaking the Sabbath or whatever, but it might be interpersonal. It could be something where an individual has, a pastor has taken a strong stand against somebody and hurt them or, or whatever the case may be, and, and the person's trying to get that thing sorted out. Pastors who have made a mistake like that should be willing to say they're sorry. And of course, speaking generically, I never know, because I don't know the circumstances that we're talking about, you never know whether or not this is a 
pastor taking a stand against something that the, uh, that a member shouldn't be doing, whereas and that made the church member upset. Now, when you get into that kind of scenario, that that those things get really confusing. But I'm keeping it clean, and that is that the person you said the person did something, the pastor did something that was clearly wrong, and the leaders in the church recognized it was wrong and came and said that it needs to be corrected, and the pastor apparently did not correct it. So what recourse does the church have at that time? That's when the church leadership, church head elder, needs to call the ministerial director. That is part of the role that I have. You can call, in the conference, we're not uh, proprietary or protective of our positions or whatever, but the logical place is to go to the ministerial director, and that's where most people go. Sometimes people say, look, I know Elder Gallimore really well, and I don't know that Royce Snayman fellow, so I'm not going to Royce Snayman, I'm going to, to Elder Gallimore, and I'm going to talk to him. Um, and that's fine. But you go to somebody at the conference office, and you explain to them the situation, and you ask for counsel in regard to it. Assuming that everybody is on agreement with that, what's probably going to happen to me, if it comes to me, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go to that pastor and have a conversation with them and give them a chance to explain their side of the story. If there seems to be continuity in that story, or even if there isn't, it may be that I'm going to try to intermediate, I mean, mediate in this situation and try to get the parties together to help them. That gets into the conflict resolution part that we're going to be talking about tomorrow and being able to work through that. And that would be the step in the process to take. Now, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick my neck out there. Let's say that the pastor says, yeah, it's wrong. You agree, uh, you, the person, whoever, agrees that it's wrong. The elders agree that it's wrong, but the pastor says, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. At that point, the ministerial director's got to make some choices and the personnel committee's got to make some choices. And that is, if, if it's clearly something that's wrong, the person admits it was wrong, but doesn't want to confess it and make it right, then there might be some kind of disciplinary action that might be taken on the conference level. Uh, anything from writing them up on their, in their file to moving them to another church or dismissing them from ministry if it were that bad. All of those things could happen depending on the nature of the situation and what happens. All of those things are possible. Okay? But that's the process that goes up there. Now the pastor can appeal that to the conference executive committee and then we get really all of that kind of stuff. Okay? Wow, I thought this was going to be a boring class. Um, folks, we do, we do live in serious times. And the problems that we're talking about are very real. And our churches are struggling. Pray for your church and pray for churches where they may, not be, they, they may be struggling where you aren't. And pray that God is going to continue to lead His church and help them to know how to work through these kinds of situations. Tomorrow we're going to take up from this point and pull this together. I'm going to talk about the conflict management part of it, a very important part of this component, because just as you and I can see, this church and the churches you're talking about, they ran into this problem, and then the church begins to divide. That's where conflict management skills are necessary, and the steps that need to be taken need to be taken. Tomorrow we're going to talk about that. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, wow. Lord, you saw all this coming. You knew that this world was going to be in this state. You told Paul to tell Timothy that there were going to be uh, a state in the church where people would not accept the direction that you wanted to lead them, and they would go down the wrong path, and they would think that they're doing what was right, and the church gets torn apart by these things. We can see them happening here. We've talked about them today. Please give us wisdom and understanding. Give us abundant love in our hearts and help us always to follow a good process, one that is redemptive. But when redemptive steps fail and a person is unwilling to respond to the pleading of the Spirit of God, help our churches to have the courage to show true love and be willing to take a stand against sin. And may your name be honored and glorified by that. And these individuals ultimately save because they realize that sin is that bad and they come to you in repentance. 
Go with us as we go to our places now. Thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.